This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. England's highest quality title race of all time, but coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we are off the ball here on uh, BFM. We're talking football this Monday evening and our three pundits are, there's Arvin Sidhu. Hello, everyone. It's incredible what three points can do for someone's feelings. It's a good (laughs) Monday. And uh, Nicholas Anil. Hi. Hi, guys. Good to be back. Good to be wearing the crest with pride. Uh, You know what we're talking about in a short while. (laughs) Yeah, well, Arvin and Nicholas, full disclosure, Arvin and Nicholas are Leeds United fans. They are both wearing their Leeds United shirts and they're very happy. And we have uh, a representative also actually of um, Manchester United, he is Sean Maholtra. Morning, everyone. Hope you all are having a good day. Uh, Sean is likewise very happy, but uh, he's actually wearing an ACDC T-shirt. So, uh, <laughs> so we, you've got that. Uh, this week's show, we're going to be going through just Premier League all the way. But I want to uh, use the opportunity. A lot of matches have been played in this last week, uh, many of which we talked about on Friday. Uh, I want to refer back to the score lines from earlier matches in the midweek last week because there's a lot of contrasts here, and uh, but also kind of showing movement upwards or confirming movement downwards. And so we got to start with the match Manchester United 3, Spurs 2, which everybody on the Friday show called. They knew that United would win against a Spursy Spurs, even a Spursy United. Sean... Cristiano Ronaldo, hat-trick, magnificent hat-trick, 807 career goals, uh, most of all time, although I thought Pele had 1,000. Remarkable. See, that's the, the, the funny thing about it all. It's like uh, everyone keeps saying that, you know, he's the problem, he's the issue. Every day you get a new story about United, and then he goes and does that. He was missing for the game against City. And, you know, taken a week off. Apparently, he went back to Portugal and all these kind of things. Apparently, had some hip issue. Didn't show it against Spurs. He was elite in that game. He could have scored four, maybe even five in that game. But all three of his goals were were top-notch. The first one, you don't give someone like Cristiano Ronaldo that much space to take a shot. He may not, you know, have that, that blistering pace that he used to have or those crazy shots that he maybe used to have anymore. But you don't give someone like him that kind of space because he can hurt you. And he did exactly that against Spurs. He took his chances. The one thing I think every United fan has been complaining about is that United haven't been taking their chances. And against Spurs, United took the opportunities that came their way. Uh, Nicholas, um, okay, I will do a little bit more Ronaldo, uh, love or not. You have no dog in this fight, as it were. Is Cristiano Ronaldo the problem? Because, yeah, sure, he scores a hat-trick, but does he really fit into the system at United? I know they won, but it wasn't, I felt like, the the most cohesive display. I think with a player like Ronaldo, um, it's not so much about trying to fit him into the system. It's about allowing him the freedom to do what he wants um, within the confines um, of the penalty box and on evidence against the win against first, you know, um, within 25 yards. Because Ronaldo is a player that, you know, is operating on a whole different planet. So you, you can't really set a tactical approach and, and try to fit him into the system, you know. Um, you just got to put him there and, you know, if he's up for it, like how he was up for it against Spurs, and then it's a one-man show. You don't, he, you, you don't see him, um, you know, uh, really needing support so much uh, from teammates. Of course, they come into play uh, to a certain extent, but it's all derived from the hunger and determination uh, from Cristiano Ronaldo and it encapsulated perfectly in the third goal, you know. Uh, that cross came in and for me, he had no right to, to get that header. You had two Spurs players marking him and at the end of the day, they were nowhere to be seen. You know? He just out-jumped them, out-bulleted them, you know, uh, bulleted uh, that header right into the top corner. So, um, a player like Ronaldo, he needs to be happy, he needs to be fired up, and he needs to be angry to a certain extent. I think that's what uh, Roy Keane described um, uh, Ronaldo, you know, playing with so much of anger after being uh, uh, left out of uh, City. We don't know if he was uh, injured um, and, and the reason for his return to Portugal, but you could see how fired up uh, he was against uh, Spurs. And if you look back at the top performances of Cristiano Ronaldo 
throughout the years, you know, top five performances. This has to rank as one of the top. You know, you look at that um, hat-trick he scored for Real against UA in the Champions League some time back. Um, you know, the hat-trick against uh, Spade at the 2000 World Cup. Um, not forgetting almost single-handedly carrying Portugal to the Euros uh, in 2016. And at 37, you know, a couple of uh, a month after his uh, 37th birthday, here he is doing it again. And if you look at that game, he was almost a one-man threat against uh, Spurs, you know. Um, five five shots on target, um, a hat-trick. Uh, besides him, I, I don't remember anyone else really, um, you know, threatening uh, the Spurs goal apart from that one um, shot from Pogba. So, Mm. Ronaldo on his day is untouchable. Mm. What you've described sounds like a manager's nightmare. <laughs> Uncontrollable. But let's talk about Spurs, the one of the great enigmas of English football, Arvin. You, the, what can I say? That in their previous match last week, it was Spurs 5, Everton 0. Spurs in this match gave a good account of themselves, I think could have walked away with a point. But they're clearly not in the first rank. If even Manchester United can beat them, they're not in the first rank, surely. No, they're not. Um, Conte came in quite early in the season when Nuno was dismissed. But having 10 league defeats on your name, Conte wouldn't like that. And it's, it's games like this against the top tier teams when he sees what he's working with and the mentality that Spurs don't have that will slowly push him out of the club. He would not want to have anything to do with this because he knows he cannot challenge the top tier and Conte is a serial winner. So on the day itself, I mean, he did say that they lacked experience, they lacked game management. Um, and that's true because that's what they did. If you put Ronaldo in that Spurs squad on that day, they probably would have won because Nick said it was a one-man show. But when you look at the goals that they scored, one was a penalty and the other one was Harry Maguire, the gift that keeps giving. So in that sense, um, it was quite fortunate. The, the, the play that they had and the intent that they had to attack was there. But it's just, it's not at that top level that you he expects Spurs to be. But that's the reality of where Spurs are. So in that sense, um, it is Spursy. We talked about this game last week. We did say they lose to United. But probably this coming weekend, they'll win. And that's how Spurs have been, up and down. And that's not how Conte operates. I, I trust you on Spurs predictions, Arvin. You've been spot on each time, and it is sort of like hot and cold, and it's an emotional uh, storyline, really. But let's move on to uh, Chelsea. Chelsea won Newcastle nil. In the previous match that Chelsea, Chelsea played, it was Norwich won Chelsea 3. So, you know, clearly on the same line as before. And with all that's happening with the sanctions, and uh, we talked about it quite fully on Friday... With all that's happening with the sanctions, you've got to say, the Chelsea um, players, Sean, have kept their heads. The main thing as a footballer, at least in my mind, is your main focus should be on you know every game that you play. And same for goes to the manager as well. Game by game, your main priority is to get the three points. And that's exactly what they did against Newcastle. Were they excellent against Newcastle? Probably not. You know They didn't look their usual selves, but you can understand that because there is an air of you know, fear and the uncertainty of what's going to be happening. But to them, three points is the most important thing because right behind them, you know, Arsenal are flying. So with the games in hand, Arsenal could get over them. Getting the three points is the most important thing. And Kai Havertz's goal was a beautiful goal. There were a lot of beautiful goals over the weekend, but Kai Havertz showed composure. He showed calmness in the box. To bring the ball down the way he did and just slot it right past uh, the Pravka, that's... That takes a lot of skill to do and a lot of composure. So the three points were, were huge, but I think Newcastle were really unlucky not to get something out of the game. There was a huge penalty shout that, you know, on any other day, you'd say would, would be given. Almiron had an unbelievable volley that was saved by Mendy. But Newcastle, you know, take nothing away from Newcastle. I think they're getting a lot better and it's it could get scary come next season. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Newcastle a little bit more later on. And also, um, we'll, we'll do a little VAR uh, chat on uh, that, that particular Newcastle penalty, penalty shout. But we're going to move on. And in a moment, we're going to be talking about the big match last week, where Leeds United really proved that they are the greatest football team of all time, according to two of our pundits. In a moment here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. 
because whilst he's there, it's very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back. And it's off the ball. And it's, it's, uh, I have to keep checking. Is it off the ball or on the ball? We are off the ball. At, and it's the uh, the important match. Leeds United 2, Norwich 1. But we have to bear in mind that the previous match that was played last week by Leeds United was Leeds United 0, Aston Villa 3. Norwich right, rooted right down to the bottom of the table. But, you know, Leeds showing some life. They, uh, they're now 16th. They're uh, 26 points. They played 29. Uh, so uh, th- three games in hand by Everton, one place below them. Nicholas, I know you're happy with the, that individual result. Uh, d- did you think it was a great Leeds performance of old? Yes, I think um, this, this performance typified um, what Leeds fans are used to seeing under the Bielsa era for a long time, you know, hunger, determination, um, the, the, the willingness to hunt in packs, you know, willing to put in the shift and fight for every single ball, scrap, you know. Um, and, it, and it showed, you know, the, the, the scene was already built up. Allen Road was rocking from the kickoff and um, Leeds made a bright start, you know, uh, got that goal. Uh, albeit uh, for Kyocha's uh, goal, uh, but it was a deserved lead nonetheless. And then it, it should have it should have been buried. Uh, game should have been buried uh, from then on. The the only concern I would have about uh, this result was the fact that Leeds went out of sight uh, in the first half. Uh, we could have easily, you know, uh, Rafinha had a couple of chances. Bamford had a couple of chances, and as a result, uh, Norwich took uh, perhaps um, the only chance they had. Um, and equalized um, in the in the dying minutes, um, and thankfully, thankfully we had another chance, um, which was converted by young uh, Joel Gerhardt. So a lot of positives uh, from this performance, but uh, there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, for me, the conversion rate has to be better, because bear in mind this is Norwich. Norwich looked like shoe in to go down, and they were second best for ninety percent of this match. So uh, the fact that we did not kill them off earlier. Uh, says a lot, but it was such a relief to get three points. And, you know, um, it really puts some breathing space uh, between uh, Leeds and the relegation dogfight. Uh, but it's not over yet. Uh, there's still a long way more to go. Nine more matches, big, big matches coming up. But no doubt this win um, goes a long way in boosting not only the players' morale, but also Jesse March, who has, you know, come in and is experiencing the Premier League uh, with every single game. I think he's pretty much experienced every single emotion um, that a Premier League team uh, um, mm. has experienced up till now. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Sean can already attest to this, that I have attached an electric shock to the pundits that whenever they say we when talking about their teams, they will get zapped. Um, <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't, uh, I haven't linked up Nicholas yet, so next time. Arvind, bit of impartiality if you can. It was a good scoreline, but it was uh, it was Norwich. We have to bear in mind that they Leeds got absolutely hammered by uh, Aston Villa just before that. Bamford is back. He's not a Ronaldo-style high scorer, but he must make a difference. Do you think that? Do you think the chances are that Leeds can um, can pull it off and and stay in the Premier League? Yeah, the chances are much more brighter after last night compared to last week. I mean, against Villa, we were dreadful. They were absolutely dreadful against Villa. He said we. Sorry. Yeah, Villa, 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 they were absolutely dreadful. Uh, but when you're coming off a losing streak like Leeds have been going through, it doesn't matter whether you win 5-1 or you win 1-0. You just need to get the win. And they did. And it's against a fellow relegation um, contender in Norwich. So it doesn't matter how it happened. It just met, it just needed to happen. Uh, Jesse March has come in and has taken a lot of flack, which he doesn't deserve because he's come into a situation that is not his doing. Uh, Marcelo Bielsa has left, has left behind a legacy. There are fans that are upset with the owners. There are fans that were upset with Marcelo Bielsa as well. So he's come into a situation where it's almost he has to win. If he doesn't, he's going to get the brunt of it. And it's unfortunate because he's inheriting a situation that's not his doing. But from the initial stages of what we see from the man, he's very honest. He's very straight to the point. And he has a style of play that is an evolution from what Marcelo Bielsa set the basics for. So I agree with Nick. Um, Leeds should have been well ahead in the first half. They should have been up by a couple of goals. But that's what happens with Leeds. As time goes on, 
the nervousness in the players comes because the, the fan emotion comes down to the players as the, the game goes on. And I've been on the show many months and I always tell, I always say Kenny McLean is not a Premier League player. And what does he do? He goes and scores the only chance that they have. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is un- undoubted karma. But Leeds needed that moment. And are those moments that hopefully will keep them up. And Allen Road was rocking. I don't think, and I'm being very unbiased here. I don't think there was a stadium that was rocking as much as Allen Road last night. And it's not, it's not because of Ronaldo getting a hat trick and other players doing well. Kai Havertz, the last minute goal. It's because of what that three points meant in that situation. It's mm. just have to do it now. Uh, next three games are key because they've got some tough ones after that. Well, uh, the next match is going to really relate to the, the leads, leads, whether they stay up or not. I want to talk about it uh, more from the point of view, actually, of uh, Everton. Everton nil, Wolves one. I'd like to talk about Wolves a little bit more later on. Sean, uh, Everton are, I mean, they're in serious relegation trouble now. They are equal on points with Watford, who are third to bottom, but, but they have three games in hand. They are... Uh, really struggling so much. The previous match that they played last week was um, an absolute thumping from Spurs. Spurs 5, Everton nil. What's, what is the trouble with uh, Everton, Sean? I, I don't know. I've watched bits and pieces of the game and they were not the better team. You, you'd think at Goodison, you know, they'd put on a show and, and really try out there. But none of that happened and there's a lack of cohesion, a lack of understanding of what they need to do, and it looks it looks dire. I think the one thing they can they can really rely on is the fact that they have the three games in hand, and that could you know eventually push them above the ones above them like Leeds or, or, or Brentford, who also got a big win over the weekend. Something Frank Lampard needs to iron out now is are there players in that team? I think Jamie Carragher mentioned it after the Spurs game. That back four is championship level. Maybe that's that's being a bit harsh, but there are certain players in that team that don't look fit to maybe play in the Premier League. I, I'm not going to point out names, but Michael Keane, was it Michael Keane, yeah, who, who looks like you know at times a really good defender, has looked really poor the last two months, scoring on goals, being defensively poor in his positioning. So I think Frank Lampard needs to iron all these things out because if they didn't have these three games in hand they'd be in big trouble. And today I was reading something where I think it's ridiculous to even think about it, where they're already thinking about, is Lampard the guy to, to take them forward past this season? You know, Sam Allardyce's name has been thrown out. I'm like, ah, I don't think that's what Everton fans would be looking forward to. But there's a lot of things that need to be fixed in that team from front to back. Absolutely. Everything needs to be fixed. Front to back and top, to bottom, perhaps, because, well, Nicholas, I don't think you've always been a big fan of Frank Lampard. Can't quite remember. But the uh, Everton always start each season with such high hopes. They And also they have this new stadium coming online. I mean, everything should be really rosy for them. But um, is it is it just uh, ownership or is it the manager, players, recruitment? What is it? It's a little bit of everything uh, at this point. Uh, Everton are battling problems on almost every front uh, with with relations to their ownership, um, the stadium, um, and of course, the appointment of Lampard, who was seen as someone who could come in and sort of uh, plug the gap after Nuno left. Um, the appointment of Nuno, for me, itself felt a bit weird uh, because um, the Everton project under Carlo Ancelotti was going seemingly, swimmingly well. You know, um, Everton was doing well. You know, you had players performing um, and, and they seemed like a very steady club. And then when he left, um, they, they sort of looked out of ideas and Nuno came in. Nuno could not get the job done. And when Nuno left, there was a void there that was waiting to be filled. It was a decision whether um, to retain Duncan Ferguson or to, pr- to promote Duncan Ferguson rather as the, uh, as the manager, coach. But eventually a decision was made to bring in Lampard. Um, and on paper, it seemed that Lampard would be up for the job. Because he had, he has the pedigree. You know, he's done well with Derby. You know, he had a decent spell in Chelsea, um, and he was someone who looked um, like you know he he was ready to come in and, and turn the fortunes of Everton. But it just is not working out. And I would not point the problem at Lampard alone because, like Sean pointed out, if you look at this game, the players look absolutely demoralized. They look void of ideas. They look second best on everything. 
yes, from the defense, that the midfield combination of Ducore and Vanderbeek was pretty much non-existent, bossed completely by the Wolves' uh, midfield. And, you know, going forward, they only had Richarlison, you know, uh, as their main outlet. And even after going down, even after going down, Everton did not barely mounted any sort of sustained attacks to try and win this match. And you could see the reaction of the fans at the end of the uh, game, you know, on how they turn towards their own players. Now, that does not make for good reading at all for a club like this, with such rich tradition, such uh, rich history. Now, bear in mind, even though they've got three matches in hand, they've got such huge games coming up. You know, uh, they've got that FA Cup quarterfinal against Crystal Palace, which uh, is probably not the thing that they need right now. A game which they need, uh, bearing in mind, uh, uh, league survival is most important. And after that, they've got West Ham and they've got United. Now, if they do not win this, these three matches, that, that three game um, uh, which they have is evaporated and they ultimately in the relegation dogfight. So, yeah. Everton are in big, big problems. Big, big problems. And it just suddenly struck me as like, the idea of Everton going down is almost inconceivable. And if they did, that would be the biggest club I think I've ever witnessed going down in my football-watching career. I never saw Manchester United go down in the 80s, but that would be incredible. Yeah. Arvin, I want to talk about the next match that I'm, I'm highlighting here is West Ham 2, Aston Villa 1. Uh, in their previous match, Aston Villa obviously thumped Leeds 3-0. But the thing that I got when I was watching this is I realized, actually, West Ham has some seriously good players. Um, ben Rama, Rice. I mean, there are some... We, we At the beginning of the season, it was like, oh, West Ham, what are they going to do? Nothing much. But they're doing very well. And really, we shouldn't be surprised. They, ha- they are a very good team. Yeah. They just keep bouncing back and coming back, regardless of what the pundits are saying, that the squad is small. But they're keeping their, their Champions League hopes. It's alive. I mean, it's it's not as bright as some are right. There are players that can show up on the day. Benrahma was excellent. Two assists for the goals. Uh, Thomas Suchek scoring as well. That that That's something that used to happen quite a lot in the seasons when he came previously, but not as often these days. Declan Rice, uh, I agree with Sean. Uh, for me, he's the best central midfielder in the Premier League this season. So in that sense, there were a lot of good things. And there are a lot of good things that are happening without Mikel Antonio playing well. When you know Mikel Antonio is not playing well, but the rest of them are contributing, that's when you know that they're in good hands. And the one thing that I think everyone should celebrate over the weekend is Andrei Armalenko's goal. I mean, Mm. that's a goal Mm. for Ukraine. That's a goal that if football can ever be a change agent, that it's, it's incidents like that. And credit to David Moyes coming out and saying, there are, better thing, there are bigger things in life than football because they are. Uh, discredit someone like Eddie Howe, who kind of on the on the day when a reporter asked him about 81 beheadings in Saudi Arabia and he says, I only want to talk about football. There are bigger things. So credit to David Moyes, credit to Anvira Malenko, credit to West Ham. West Ham, a club who over the last few seasons, ownership, fans, there's been tension. They're going in the right direction. And you put it all down to David Moyes because when you look at it now, he was nine years in Everton. Yes, that he's been in West Ham he's almost had similar impact or maybe even a little bit more. So it's all down to David Moyes and um, top six at least. Hopefully they get into Europa League. And also, you know, as I got older, I, I look to older people as role models and it's always nice to see an old fella like Moyes having, <laughs> having a, a, you know, a spring and it's like everyone's saying he's the greatest manager of all time. It's like, yeah, go old people. Uh, <laughs> Sean, very quickly though, uh, Aston Villa. Aston Villa, contrasty, they've been having a very good run uh, with uh, Stephen Gerrard three in a row that got broken though by West Ham Villa were not bad but are we seeing the limits of what Villa can do or or, or will they progress still further do you think I think they can progress so much more I mean don't forget who they were playing they were playing against West Ham they weren't playing against some other you know team that's struggling or something West Ham are a team that you know is on the ascendancy as well they have really good players, like you guys mentioned earlier. They play good football. It wasn't going to be an easy game for Villa, but they weren't blown out of the park. We've seen you know, Villa get better each game. So though they may have a blip here and there, they have players that can hurt you. And they play Arsenal next. Now, on paper, you think you know the way Arsenal are playing, they'll probably wash Villa aside. But it will be a really entertaining game because you've got two teams that really like attacking and you've got two defences that are really physical and will probably go at each other. Villa against Arsenal is not a foregone conclusion that you know, Arsenal are going to get three points in this game. Villa could really push them. Uh, you're seeing players coming out of their shells that, at the right time. So, you know, Gerard has, 
everything he could possibly want. He's got a young team that can challenge, that can play really well. Come next season, he's probably going to get other players in that can can work with his philosophy and the way he wants to play. They play really good attacking football. Losing against West Ham, I don't think it's any discredit to Villa. They still have you know a big project that they can work on. Okay, so uh, we're going to come back in a moment, and we're going. To, I want to ask uh, about the enigma for me that is Wolverhampton Wanderers here on Off the Ball BFM eighty nine point nine. Captain, leader, legend. Off the ball on BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back on Off the Ball with myself, Cam Ruslan, Arvin Sidhu, Nicholas Anil, and Sean Maholtra. And now I've been. Uh, told in, in the past that I've been brushing over certain teams. So I want to really uh, give them the, 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 the respect they deserve. So I want to talk about Wolverhampton Wanderers. Everton nil, Wolves won. You know, Wolves are, uh, are doing something quite special, I think. They're in the seventh. They are in a good position to get a some kind of European spot. But I don't really fully understand Wolves. They have been called the was it Portugal B team? Um, they are they just a showcase for Portuguese players? Are they just uh, a showcase for one agent's uh, clients? Nicholas, what what is Wolverhampton Wanderers about? What what's their style? What's their skill? I think they have um, evolved a lot from the time that Bruno um, had managed them, um, and now they are under the Bruno Lager era. Um, you have to you have to look at at Bruno and and, and the style uh, that he brings to this team. He's a completely contrasting manager from uh, Nuno. Um, I, I read an article recently uh, on on the impact that he made as soon as he came in. Um, so he ke- he comes into the club uh, and he asks where's the presentation suite. Uh, Wolves say that they do not have a presentation suite, and he immediately asks for one. Um, and then he goes on to transform um, his whole Wolves setup, um, where heavy. Um, Emphasis is placed on a uh, tactical analysis. So um, you know, tactical analysis uh, sessions are held twice a day, as compared to those uh, once a day. Um, and and not only that, so they have a general session, and then it's it's broken up. Um, after that, the defenders go into separate sessions uh, with their respective coaches, and and so do the midfielders, and so do the strikers. Um, so a lot of attention is paid on the tactical side of it. Uh, but as a coach itself, you know, he is a completely different character. From what uh, Nuno was, uh, whereas uh, Nuno would appear stern and, and disciplined and command uh, respect, um, Bruno Lager is a bit more affable uh, with the players, and I think that really um, sort of harmonized the team. Um, and also, he kept a lot of the squad intact. He didn't make wholesale changes. You know, he, he maintained the core core team. So if you look at his current Wolves side, they have Connor Cody, they have Ruben Neves, uh, Moutinho. Um, and of course, uh, Jimenez as well. So these are the fulcrum of the team, and and he's used that you know to continue uh, expanding this wolf side. So um, the work that he's done for me has gone largely underrated. He's he's one of the most underrated coaches in the Premiership, but the work that he's done behind the scenes is, is so much. What you see on the pitch is a result of of the work that goes on behind the scenes, and and it's a huge testament. Uh, to, to Bruno Lager and the project that he's working on. So uh, for me, uh, Wolves have, have absolutely, uh, you know, uh, transformed and they have only progressed. I think a lot of uh, question marks uh, were there after Nuno left and who was going to come in and sort of steady the ship. But Bruno has not only steadied the ship, he has now improved them as a team, as a unit. Apologies there for a bit of a uh, sound breakup with uh, Nicholas's uh, analysis there, but it was it was it was so in depth and knowledgeable. I didn't want to I didn't want to stop him. That was <laughs> uh, that was good. Arvin, I want to ask a little bit more, and I'm going to put you on the spot here because I don't know if you know the answer to this. But the all these diff- the Premier League clubs are all owned in very strange and very different ways. Wolverhampton Wanderers has has had for the last what five years now um, an ownership that. Um, but it's very it's very peculiar. It's it it seems to be an agent's kind of showreel. I mean, who owns it, and what is the purpose of Wolves? I think the majority the majority shareholders of Wolves is actually the the Fosun Group from China. So the CEO of the Fosun Group, uh, Wang Kunbin, I think he he owns the main part of that. But obviously, uh, Jorge Mendes as a, as a super agent has been entrusted to work together with the manager, whoever that manager is. And he had obviously a very good relationship previously with Nuno. 
to kind of spot talents around Europe and to be able to bring them in. Obviously, when that happens, there's that obvious Portuguese flavor that we started this conversation with. Um, but what I like about Wolves is the Portuguese flavor that they've kind of brought into it is not the ones that have their careers have progressed far, far above and they're choosing Wolves as a second option. Look at Ruben Neves. Ruben Neves, for me, can play in a bigger club than Wolves. And this is no disrespect to Wolves, but Ruben Neves could play in a Chelsea. I feel he could play in an Arsenal. He's even been, there's even been soft rumours of him going to City eventually when Fernandino's days come to an end. And then they've got experienced hits like Juan Martino, who've actually played in big clubs around Europe. So the model that they do and they bring to that club is a little bit of a mix of young enterprising talent and, of course, the ones that are there for the future. So in that sense, uh, we talked about the, the, the Jorge Mendes piece a lot with Nuno around, but it seems to have quieted down a little bit now as they look a little bit more in a variety sense of their players. But it's worked. I mean, whenever I talk about Premier League teams and those that come up promoted, Wolves finish seventh, two seasons in a row. As a promoted team, that is so incredibly difficult. And right now, they're on course to be a top 10 again. So I think they're a model that any championship team that's coming up can aspire to be. Uh, correct. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Yes, well done. Um, okay, I want to move on then to uh, Sean. I want to move on to uh, another two clubs that I've, I've not shown enough love to and uh, perhaps I'm overcompensating, but it was Southampton 1, Watford 2. Watford finally get a win. They are, and I have to scroll very far down, they are now third from bottom, 22 points, <clears throat> but they played a full 29 matches. Touching distance to safety, Roy Hodgson doing his bit, I guess. I don't think that there's a chance for safety, but do you, one, and do you do think that Watford could possibly pull this off? And two, Southampton, Southampton, what's going on there? I want to I touch on Southampton first because... Huh? Uh, they had a good spell. I think it was like five, six games under Hausenhutl. And then it's suddenly all gone down. I think this is the one thing Ralph Hausenhutl has struggled with for Southampton. Consistency is not there. I keep mentioning this every week because they'll go on a long run of five, six wins or five, six games unbeaten. And then they'll go on this barren run where they'll lose like two, three games. But take nothing away from Watford on the day. Chucho Hernandez, I think... Uh, had a terrible midweek <laughs> and then this week he's come out and scored two goals and then got them over the line but I don't think it'll be enough in the long haul you know you you look at it they've played 29 games and above them is is uh, Everton like we said earlier have three games in hand I think out of the, the the ones at the bottom right now they'll be the ones that can push the most to try to get out of relegation but I don't think they have enough in them in terms of quality, to, to just get them over the line. There are players in that team that you would say could play in a, you know, the other Premier League teams like Ismaili Saar, but they just don't have it in them, I think, to, to get it over the line right now. But Southampton, I, it, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise because this is what they do. They'll go on a good run, and then suddenly everything will go bad again. But give it a month and you'll see them performing again. Yeah, I, I mean... The thing about Southampton is that they're sitting in 10th. They're on 35 points. I mean, I would imagine 35 points is safety. They're, they're, they're safe. Nicholas, do you think that some teams like, for instance, Southampton and what's around them? We have, say, Crystal Palace, Aston Villa even. Um, do you think their season's over? And uh, they're just, well, I wouldn't say taking it easy, but they don't feel the pressure uh, anymore. Yeah, I, I would think so. I think um, for, for teams that are placed between 9th and Fifteenth uh, at, at this stage of the season, um, you pretty much have not to say nothing to look forward to. But if you know that you're not going to break the threshold of trying to get into European places, then what is the aspiration? You know, to try and finish as high uh, as possible in the league. Um, you know, and then of course you are fighting for for your futures. The players are fighting for futures. They are fighting, you know, for either contract extensions or they are fighting to go to bigger clubs. And it's the same for the managers as well. You know, uh, if they if they sense that they have an opportunity at a bigger club, uh, then of course they want to do the best to end the season on a high and you know try and get the next big thing. So um, for me, that is that is more boiling down to personal motivation rather than you know a collective team effort, uh, which is striving to to let's say you know uh, let's let's try and and get those Europa League places or you know let's try and avoid relegation because. Uh, the longer the season goes on, 
the motivation level will have to be concentrated. It has to be concentrated on a target. And if there isn't a real substantial target, and then I think it boils down to personal targets. And I think that is where all these clubs and, and players uh, sort of operate between now and at the end of the season. Europa spot is surely that one thing that everybody wants to avoid just as much as they, they want to avoid relegation. <laughs> who, who wants to go to Europa League? Um, Arvind, uh, speaking of uh, teams and players with, uh, with mixed uh, goals moving forward, Brighton nil, Liverpool 2. Brighton, I think, pretty comfortably in mid-table. They're okay. Liverpool, they're going to be playing in the league and just simply hoping that City are going to slip up. But they have to keep going. Uh, it was a wonderful goal from Diaz, but he was completely destroyed by the goalkeeper. We'll talk about that a bit more later, though. Uh, Salah, to me, looked like he's over the Africa Cup of Nations. Uh, routine from uh, Liverpool? Yeah, they didn't need to get into third or fourth gear. gear. They, they strolled. Uh, it's eight Premier League wins in a row right now. Um, they cut the gap because City have got a tricky one tonight away at Palace, which by all no means is not a, not a conclusion, not a straightforward conclusion that they would win because they had trouble with Palace earlier in the season and we've seen the renaissance under Patrick Vieira. Um, but Mohamed Salah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk right now about the contract situation with him, with Liverpool. I mean, the guy has got 20 plus goals for four out of five seasons. The season that he didn't get 20, he was on 19. I mean, Liverpool just need to sign him up. There are certain. I, I understand the need to respect wage structures within a club, but there are some players that are generational that you just need to push the board out and get them to sign up. Because if they lose him, it's. I, I think they've got the other positions covered. Luis Diaz can kind of come in for for Mane, and and Diego Jota can kind of do that Firmino role. Not exactly the same, but somewhat similar. But they lose Salah, it's a big thing. But I think Liverpool in their mind is probably thinking. He's 29. If we, if when his contract ends, he's 31. Who in Europe is going to take him? The Spanish giants don't look to be paying big bucks anymore. They've got other priorities. Can Bayern afford him? He won't go to another Premier League team. He probably would commit, but they need to get him to sign up. But other than that, yeah, uh, Robert Sanchez was very fortunate with that one. Alisson was a bit fortunate uh, one part as well. He looked like to have handled the ball outside of the box on that one. And Brighton are being Brighton. I mean, early season form, keeping them up. Uh, but now, as you spend a bit more time online, they're actually being called the XG merchants because their XGs are so high, but they just don't mm. translate it to goals. Somewhat similar to Leeds as well. So in that sense, uh, but they'll be happy where they are, Brighton. They, they, they're safe. Mohamed Salah, greatest player in the Premier League right now? Yeah. I mean, take away the fact that I'm a United fan. I, Mohamed Salah is unbelievable. Honestly, I, I, the thing is, I, I've seen this guy since he was at FC Basel because I used to really like Shodan Shakiri at FC Basel. Then I saw him at Chelsea and I thought, what is this? <laughs> he didn't get many chances, but he didn't look great. But ever since he went to Italy, he's looked like a different player. And I, I think Liverpool need to sign him up. There's not many players, I'd say, you know, in the Premier League where a team should bow down and be like, okay, we'll give you whatever you want kind of thing. Because I think I saw it online and I don't know how how much of this is true that Salah wants, you know, like a, a decent bump up in his contract and his agent though wants a huge bump up in the contract. And if that's the case, you know, that is going to be a bit of a problem going down the road. And I think Arvin said it best just now. It is going to be very difficult come 31 if anyone wants to get him at that point. Staying in Liverpool will be key. Uh, again, inconceivable. I, I, Mohamed Salah leaving Liverpool right now is inconceivable. Uh, but in a moment, uh, we're going to be talking... Uh, after the break, about um, another team that's really on the up and up uh, here on Off the Ball BFM 89.9. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball. And now, in our last part, a team that um, has taken me by surprise this season Arsenal 2, Leicester 0. And I remember at the very beginning of this season, Arsenal got beaten by Brentford and it just seemed like everybody was expecting it to happen. And yet the, the Renaissance since then under uh, Mikel Arteta has been remarkable. They're now in fourth. They are comfortably in fourth with three games in hand over United who are below them by one point. They are playing Liverpool next, but they, um, Nicholas, what is, I've been asking this of everybody and no one could give me a clear answer. What is the Arteta 
process? What are what are they doing? Um, I think firstly you got to give a lot of credit to the Arsenal board. Um, when Arteta did not have the greatest start at the at, at the beginning of this season, um, there were a lot of calls for him to to be sacked, and the board kept faith in him. They trusted him. They trusted his his methods with the players. They trusted his approach. They trusted his selection. And true enough, it's paying off handsomely. And, and for Arteta itself, um, what a transformation of a season. I think um, this is probably his defining um, um, season as a, as a coach. You know, um, Of course, you know, being under the wings of Pep Guardiola helped a lot. And now he's using a lot of that guidance and that, and that expertise and that foresight of, of, of that uh, tutorship uh, uh, or discipleship under Guardiola uh, to good use against uh, um, Arsenal. You know, there, there's so much of challenges that he's had to face throughout the season. You know, dealing with uh, one-away players, and and he's done that so so well. You know, you just have to go back to this whole Abu Mayang issue and, and see how he handled that situation. He made a decision to not pick him anymore, and he stuck to it. And look how he has paid off not only for the club but also for the player himself, and 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 for the fact that Arsenal did not sign and Bumayang replaced. See how well they are doing. You know the fact that every player is now contributing with goals. Um, uh, when Abu Mayang left, you look to Lacazette. Of course, Lacazette scored yesterday, but he's not been scoring consistently. But they have got other players to step in. You know, Saka has continuously performed. So has Emil Smith-Rowe. Um, and you've got the likes of Martinelli. Odegaard has been an absolute revelation as well. Shaka has got his head in the game. You know, even though he's still prone to the outrageous tackles, you know, he's looking more like a leader. So all these things have gone right for Arsenal. And, and a lot of credit... Arteta has to take for the immense work that he has done. And, and he shut out the noise and allowed the players to just focus on their jobs on the pitch and look where they are now, comfortably in fourth and their favourites to get that final Champions League spot. Well, Nicholas there, I think, has uh, outlined the psychology and kind of structural um, scene that, that uh, Arteta has created there. But Arvin, I want to ask, ask about the more the, the tactical on the pitch. What What, what is the... The Arteta style. I think I, I think I now know very clearly what the Pep Guardiola team plays. I think I now know very clearly what a Klopp or certainly Liverpool, how they play and what they, they expect to do. What is it that, that, that Liverpool are doing, apart from just uh, signing up young, young players who are quite quick? He, what Arteta is doing is showing a variety of play that probably Arsenal previous managers didn't have. Under Unai Emery, I thought they were a little bit one-dimensional. But with this Arsenal squad, you can see that they can they can hurt you in a variety of ways. And the one thing that he's really done well from a tactical perspective is he's allowed Martin Odegaard to really flourish in the role that Martin Odegaard we've talked about for years. Martin Odegaard had very good seasons at Real Sociedad. He, did, he couldn't make it at Real Madrid, but maybe that's due to the already a lack of time. And I respect Martin Odegaard because he could have chosen to just be on the bench at Madrid, but he said, no, I want to move because I want to play football. And what, uh, the, from a tactical perspective is, he's allowed sort of a diamond formation, but not the conventional diamond because the three in the middle, the Odegaard, Thomas Partey and Shaka, they control so much of what's happening there. And then when they ping it to the right and the left and you have Saka and Martinelli, they hurt you. They hurt you really badly because their speed and their direct. And the one person, like what Nicholas says, that gets a lot of unnoticed work but is so crucial to the way they play is Alexander Lacazette. Because Lacazette holds it together and he lets everyone else come in. So you have runners coming from the middle and hurting you in a variety of ways. Either it's on the wing play or Odegaard with his passes in the middle. And what, for me has made them the most informed team in Europe right now because in the last 10 games in Europe, they're the most informed team. They're more informed than City, Barcelona, Liverpool. They're just winning games. And obviously, some people will say they've had easier games, but it doesn't matter. You only beat what's in front of you. For me, what's really worked for them is that back five is a settled back five. We could not say that at the later years of Wenger. We could not say that at the years of Emery. Ramsdale... Tierney, Ben White, Gabriel. And right now, right back, slight problem because Tomiyasu gets injured, Soares comes in. That settled back five, it's so important. So for me, variety of play and they hurt you in so many ways. 
future is very bright for Arsenal. Man. Yeah, and speaking of which, Sean, as a Manchester United fan, you must be green with envy because, <laughs> I mean, what what Arteta's done in pretty much a season, well, let's say, you know, last season as well, was was building up. Manchester United have failed to do in, in how many years now is it since uh, that, that old Scottish guy left? Um, Ooh, it's almost a decade. <laughs> it's almost a decade. Um, and I don't really want to talk too much about United, but, I mean, here you have uh, a commitment to a young manager to create a system of play that, that Arvin has described to us. It can be done. I guess I am asking about Manchester United. <laughs> what, why, why, you know, what? Why? Why? I mean, it's the same question United fans ask themselves all the time. Why can't it be done? You know, that there's there's one component of it where you could say, hey, you know what, sign a manager that knows what he needs to do, get the right players in and all these kind of things. That's the, the easy way of looking at it. But when you realize that the club isn't run well from top to bottom, that's where the, the, there are issues there too. Of course, you know, you, you want your team to be playing well on the field, but there's an incon consistency with who's going to be there there's stories coming out every week about you know which player belongs here is there a player who wants to leave united are going to be talked about even if they win for example united <laughs> winning over the weekend with a hat trick from ronaldo what's the first article that comes out the real issue wasn't really ronaldo it was bruno so you have these kind of things so what i think the differentiates arsenal from united is the fact that arsenal have managed to get these these young lads in who you don't have big names surrounding them who can, you know, if they turn it on like they are doing now, don't forget Arsenal did spend 150 million in the summer transfer. They are getting it, they're getting the best out of their players right now. And it's long term players, not short term players. Mm. It's not a short term fix. Yeah. And still a bit of Manchester United defiance there from Sean. <laughs> uh, you know, bless you. But uh, we're going to move on then. The final, the final thing I want to talk about on this week's show is VAR. I don't normally like to talk about it, but there were a couple of VAR issues here or penalty shouts uh, that, that really need to be looked at. And I want to ask, first of all, uh, Nicholas, in the, in the Brighton-Liverpool match, uh, Diaz scored a wonderful goal. But he was he was absolutely destroyed by the goalkeeper who came out making no effort whatsoever, really, to get the ball and didn't get a red card. I mean, is this uh, do I not understand the rules? I mean, that that was more like uh, grievous bodily harm, not just a red card offense. That looked like a WWE clothesline. You know? um, <laughs> and if it were happening any other part of the pitch, what would the decision be? That's a that's a direct red. If it happens anywhere else, you know, if it if it. If it happens in the in the middle of the pitch, uh, a, a direct uh, close line sort of sort of uh, barging into the player without any intention to get the ball. Now the reason and the justification that that goal stood was because it was a goal, but the consequences that uh, uh, Sanchez first of all did not know that Luis was going to score. You know he just came out with the intention of stopping him, full stop. So. While VAR is good in, you know, uh, it, it has its advantages. I, I feel situations like this is, is, is a sure thing. You, you do not even need to deliberate on it because, you know, when it involves a player's safety, Diaz was really lucky that he was able to get up and continue. Mm. It could have easily been a serious head injury or concussion. And for the, for the perpetrator to, to get away, even without a cut, is, is unacceptable for me. Yeah, and when when you have to use the word perpetrator to describe a fellow who'd committed a foul, I mean that shows how bad it was. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Arvin in the uh, Newcastle match, Chelsea won Newcastle nil. Uh, Alan Shearer, Newcastle legend, was absolutely apoplectic after the match, <laughs> as was Eddie Howe, uh, talking about shirt pulling in the in the box that he felt uh, should have uh, amounted to a penalty. And at that point, it was, uh, I think it was still nil-nil. So is, I mean, you know, you, you've seen them given, and but VAR supposedly was supposed to give you consistency on these things? Yeah, and that's what the issue is. There's no consistency. I mean, when you have a former Premier League official in Keith Hackett coming out and criticizing the calls that I think the referee was David Cook on the night, that's when you know that the referees themselves don't have a template to what they understand to be consistent and non-consistent. You would expect a tool like VAR to help you in these situations, but it doesn't as well. And that's why it's always been an issue with VAR. It's not the idea or the ideology that's wrong behind VAR. It's been always the implementation. It seems like these referees never went for a course to understand 
consistently what is what is right and what isn't. It wasn't just the the the, the shirt pulling by 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 Trevor Chalaba on the day itself. Even Kai Havertz only got a yellow for elbowing Dan Burn. I mean, a, an mm. elbow right to the face. I mean, in any other situation, that's a red. So I can understand Newcastle feeling aggrieved by it, and it happens, and it's happened to every team in the Premier League this season. I think when I looked at there was a report at the beginning of February of VAR calls and who had determined either you had positive VAR calls in your favour or you were the unfortunate end. The only club that had a balanced set of of results or decisions against them was Tottenham Hotspur. They were zero. Basically, they had enough VAR calls that were going for them and enough VAR calls that were going against them. So you kind of normalise it. So it was zero. They were fine. Every other club either were benefiting from it or they were on the receiving end for it. You can only hope at the end of the season it evens itself out because that's what we used to say about referee calls when VAR wasn't around. Yeah, or, or there are conspiracies, aren't there? Uh, I mean, every 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 fan is convinced that there's yeah, conspiracy. Yeah, every, every fan you speak to would say, I've got loads of Leeds fans that tell me VAR is the most, most uh, it's disgusting the way it's treated us. But when you look at the Leeds stats, Leeds have benefited from positive Ooh. two VAR calls. That's the reality <laughs> of it. So... Let's let's look at what the facts on the field are. And and with this list, which was the which which team was uh, penalised the most? I think it was Watford. I think Watford had a negative four, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. So they feel any reason to be aggrieved if they go down. They'll be like, "Wow, it's been really criminal to us." So see, I I knew there was an anti-Watford conspiracy. I knew it. <laughs> that was. <laughs> <laughs> Makes perfect sense. And on that on that uh, discovery of criminal behavior, uh, we come to the end of this week's show. And so it remains me now to thank our pundits, Sean Maholtra. Hello, hello. Thank you, everyone. I hope to see you all next week. Have a and, week. and looking forward to seeing your next heavy metal T-shirt. <laughs> and uh, Nicholas Arniel, great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Cam. Have a good week, everybody. And Arvin Sidhu. Thanks, everyone. Marching on together. <laughs> so thank you very much and join us on Friday for On the Ball here on BFM 89.9 England's highest quality title race of all time but coming out on top again in the Premier League Manchester City Off the Ball on BFM 89.9 Thank you for listening to this podcast To find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes BFM 89.9 The Business Station.